Today's episode is sponsored by Game Time Again, who have just gone live with an epic science fiction worker placement board game on Kickstarter. Perpetuity can be played from the perspective of the mortal adventurers trying to survive the system, or the immortal ancient star that has become self-aware and is anxious to chase away the mortal invaders. The game supports 1-5 to five players and is recommended for ages 10 and up, so be sure to check out Perpetuity on Kickstarter right now. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one, and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about the pros and the cons of doing everything yourself. We're talking about the upsides and the downsides of being a one-man band, a one-person band, so to speak, and trying to figure it out all on your lonesome. And we're talking to Malachi Ray Rimpin from Keen Bean Studio. Malachi, welcome back to the show. Hello, Gabe. Pleasure to be back. Yeah, man. Glad that you're here. You were here, I want to say a year ago, but it might have been six years because it, it was a it was a long, long year last month. Uh, feels yeah, like time and, has no meaning this way. <laughs> it really doesn't. COVID has just like totally distorted my uh, perception of time. And so anyway, you were on the show a while back. We'll, we'll just say that where I come from uh, the other day, I guess we could say, because where I come from the other day could mean like yesterday or a decade ago. And so you were on the show the other day, the other day. and uh, you had this really interesting movie themed game called Roll Camera. And uh, I think it just recently got out into retail and out into the wild and, and people are getting it. It seems to be a lot of fun. I haven't been able to play it yet, but it looks really good. And you've got some other cool projects in the works, including an expansion. And, and you've, you've done a lot of things on your own and you've done a lot of things uh, now with other people. And so I'm excited to kind of get your perspective on the pros and cons of both sides, you know, in the game industry, the, the board game industry, you can kind of do a lot of stuff on your own versus video games or a lot of other creative outlets where you, you really can't. Like the odds of you being able to create your own video game by yourself is pretty low. But in the board game space, you can maybe, you know, make it happen a lot easier. And so I think this is something a lot of people run into and are maybe even thinking about. Can I, can I do this on my own? What are the ups and downs? And so, yeah, just glad to have you on the show and talk about it. But before we get into that, remind people who you are, how you got into game design, all that kind of thing. Uh, yes, uh, the intro. I am, as you said, uh, Malachi Ray Rempen, or just Mal. Um, I got into board games through, I mean, I'd been playing games when I was a kid with, uh, you know, but not like complicated games. I was playing chess and Magic the Gathering and sort of the standard stuff. Um, and I got into filmmaking. That was always my passion. Uh, that was always my my dream and my drive. And then I kind of, long story short, I came to Europe uh, after I studied film school and worked in the film industry and was working in film here as a freelancer. 
Um, and in Europe, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I live in Berlin um, and I lived all over different parts of Europe and I started a web comic uh, called Itchy Feet, the travel and language comic to kind of chronicle my journeys through uh, learning new languages and different cultures and, and so on. And now it's kind of evolved into starting a family and <laughs> intercultural family and all of this stuff. Um, and I was brainstorming ideas. It was always just a side project. Always just a thing that I did kind of as a lark, just as a kind of why not, like I did this weekly webcomic because I can doodle. So, you know, it beats having a blog. Um, but it sort of took off after a couple of years and it started to gain an audience way more traction than anything I ever got with filmmaking. Um, and so I just started to think like, huh, how can I mark, like what can I do for merchandise? And there was a, there was a, this was a point about six years in where I just had enough of an audience where I thought like maybe I can make a couple bucks you know, with some books or some mugs or whatever. And I didn't really want to do mugs or shirts. And, uh, and I just felt like that was really not nothing, adding anything useful to the world. And a friend of mine said, why don't you do a card game? And this was right around when the time when Exploding Kittens came out. And that also being based on the guy, uh, this guy's not based on his comic, but it's the guy who did the oatmeal. And so he was sort of leveraging his webcomic audience. And I thought, sure, card game, Pfft, how hard can that be? And, uh, I put that together. And around that time as well, uh, so one of my friends here in Berlin introduced me to Pandemic Legacy, and that was my first sort of tabletop game experience. And I realized there was this whole rabbit hole to, to go into. Um, so I did Itchy Feet the Card Game. Uh, again, kind of as like a, well, maybe some of my backers or sorry, followers will back it. And, you know, it was my first Kickstarter, and I didn't really think too much about it. I did bring on a, a co-designer, Maxime Ryu from, uh, from Quebec. He was a reader of the comic and he helped me kind of, I had never done a game before. And so I wanted to bring on someone who kind of knew more than I did. And he definitely did. And, and the two of us kind of brought that uh, to life. And then it just did really well. It did surprisingly well. It raised over $100,000 and I just was not prepared for that in my life. I just had not considered this. Uh, and then my uh, after that, my wife basically said, uh, I'd be kind of stupid not to do another one. And so I developed, uh, based on filmmaking, my kind of, my uh, my old love, my old flame. Uh, there hadn't really been a board game based on filmmaking, uh, not based on like shooting a film. There's, there are board games based on sort of studio management or like top level, like competitive, you know, putting a film together in the in the most abstract possible sense or or I think there is a Euro game that has to do with sort of you're your managing a film studio and like the resources there. But that perspective didn't interest me. What interested me was like actually shooting a film when you set up for a shot and you have the actors there in front of the camera and like you're setting up scene by scene and putting an actual film together. That's the part that I do and enjoy. And so that's the part I wanted to communicate as a tabletop game. And I just, it, it like blew my mind that no one had thought of it before because it kind of, uh, maps like filmmaking the experience of making a film and being on set maps very closely to a tabletop experience in the sense that there's like a limited space you're working with and like pieces that you're putting in places and like equipment with special abilities and people with certain roles and you're it's collaborative and so I kind of wanted to leverage all of that um, and put it into into uh, and also my from my experience and put it into a board game and so roll camera launched uh, yeah after we talked uh, uh 12 or 20 years ago. And uh, it just delivered this past couple months. Um, it was like a height of the pandemic project. And uh, that was definitely quite an experience. Also height of this like freight uh, industry kind of meltdown. Um, so kind of wading through that whole thing 
it was actually really great because I had a bunch of great backers and a really nice community that we built and everyone was very supportive. And, you know, you just kind of, there's not much you can do with some of these things and you just sort of ride the wave, but it's landed and everyone's been super enthusiastic and appreciative and of the game. And now it's, um, and now uh, I had been secretly planning an expansion of the past like six months. And I think that's my life story up until this very moment. Very cool. <laughs> and so, I mean, at this point, you've you've done a lot as far as designing, publishing, delivering, marketing, all those things. And so you, you're a pretty good person to talk to as far as like, what's it like to do a lot of this stuff on your own? And would you do it again? And why and why not and all that? And so let's get a good frame. When we're talking about doing it all on your own, what are all those things? You mentioned you had a co-designer and so you didn't design everything on your own. You know, like you've, you've done some things with other people as well. And so like, let's, let's get a good working kind of definition. When you say, I did these things on my own, what are the things we're talking about? Yeah, if you go like one person band, what are we talking about? I think, so Itchy Feet, I had a co-designer. Roll Camera was 99% me. And so I think when, and so in, in the expansion, I also have a developer I'm working with. So I have like, but, so like I did, you know, I had in the past projects I worked with people and, but roll camera was really my experience going like, what if I just did it all myself? And so I guess you could, I think when you say like one person band or, or a sort of like do it all yourself, I think um, you could broadly say that you could broadly apply that to sort of three big categories, which is design, illustration, and publishing. I feel like if you're doing all three of those things, you're doing the lion's share of the work um, involved in at least the level that um, most people are at when it comes to, you know, designing and publishing board games. Um, obviously, if you're part of a giant corporation like, I don't know, Cosmos or Hasbro or something, then you're probably publishing, you know, doing a lot more than that. But I think like that's broadly speaking, like the three, the big three would be design, illustration and publishing. Um, and then in addition to that, I think, you know, there's lots of other jobs that go in. There's graphic design, there's development and testing, there's uh, logistics, uh, the actual sort of communication with the factory and, and manufacturing. Uh, there's the marketing and the customer service, dealing with the actual backers and, and clients and so on. Um, so I think all of those things all together, kind of uh, all of that stuff I did myself on, uh, on Roll Camera. But I feel like if you came up and said you were, a designer, illustrator, and publisher all in one, I feel like that counts as like all in one, even if you're outsourcing some of those other small jobs. Right. So you're doing the lion's share of the big things. And I would probably put marketing and logistics, like fulfillment and all that kind of stuff in the bigger categories, especially now because the, the market is so crowded. It's so noisy. If you're not doing marketing, if you're just throwing it up on Kickstarter, you're not going to succeed unless you have some kind of magic you know, behind you or some kind of IP or something like that. And so marketing's probably in there uh, as well. Did you do the marketing? I think you mentioned that you yeah. did the marketing for the game. Yeah, I did like Facebook ads. I ran my own Facebook campaign, I basically taught myself how to do social media marketing, which was not a, not a strength of mine, but I, I did it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I don't want to say, no, I, I didn't mean to su suggest that, that, that those things are like not important. I think they absolutely are. I just think like if you, if you brought on a marketing company or like, you know, brought on one of these, uh, these like social media companies, that will do some marketing work for you. I think if you do that and you don't, don't do all the marketing yourself, but you still did all the design, illustration and publishing, I think you're still fair to say that you quote unquote did it all yourself. You know, um, I think that, 
that still counts as like that as like the the majority of of the work i would argue yeah that makes sense okay so let's kind of break things up into those different categories as far as design illustration or art and then publishing and let's kind of go piece by piece let's talk about the pros and cons of designing almost in a vacuum maybe not exactly because you're you're hopefully still reaching out and finding play testers and finding people that you know aren't your friend and aren't your mom to test the game so you're not like in complete isolation I assume unless you're designing soul games in that case you know maybe maybe you won't do that but um (laughs) so let's talk about like the pros and cons of designing on your own yeah well I think even if you are designing a solo game you absolutely need to get testers like you need to get outside your own bubble and I don't want to suggest that if you like I think one of the (laughs) I think one of the things you would not add to this list is play testing like I think you would not want like it would not be smart to do it all yourself quote unquote including the play testing and like i think you de- that definitely is not smart design or it's or smart development if we kind of wrap development under design in this like big picture sense um i think that yes you absolutely like and i definitely did you know went out and found play test groups uh both online and in person before the pandemic uh and exhaustively looking for people to give you a fresh perspective. Um, that's, that's very, very important. And that's one of the, I think, yeah, I think when it comes to designing by yourselves, I mean, I guess there are people there, there are people who design in groups and in in teams. Sure. Um, but I think it's also not uncommon to have designers that work solo more or less in the sense that they, from the early stages of design, where you're sort of putting the pieces together are not collaborating with someone else directly where you're sort of sharing that credit. Um, so it's not that unusual, but I do think one of the benefits to having to doing it all yourself is that you, you know, it's something I think about a lot coming from a filmmaking background, because as a filmmaker, you kind of have to work with it as a team in a team. It's very unusual to have a one person band in a, in a filmmaking sense. I mean, it does happen now with more digital cameras and people doing sort of more interesting screen capture films or like uh, documentaries, especially it's maybe more usual to find people working by themselves. But for the most part, you know, if you're doing a a fiction film, especially you generally are working with a team, even if it's a small team, you it's almost impossible to pull off completely by yourself. Um, And I've, there's a couple of projects I've done where I came close and it is not fun. Uh, So a downside to, uh, designing all by yourself or like making films, doing anything all by yourself is that you don't have anyone else to check you. You don't have anyone else to give you fresh perspective. One thing I love to do when I'm making films uh, after you shoot, one thing I would recommend anybody do if you're going to direct something or, or shoot something is if you're working with an editor, give them the footage um, after you've shot, but before you start to edit and just let them have it, like just let them run with it because see what they do with it before you have a chance to kind of pollute it with your uh, all your ideas and more importantly, all your biases with all the, the shots that you got on set uh, that took you ages and just hours or like the perf- one performance you got from that kid, the editor might go into the editing room and be like, yeah, that whole scene with that kid doesn't make any sense in the film. It'd be way better if we just cut that. Whereas you were like emotionally attached to having spent forever trying to coax this performance out of this kid. So it's really good to have someone else. Uh, it's really healthy to have someone else who just doesn't, who is not attached in that way to the production of it and can like take fresh eyes, which is a luxury I did not have uh, 
well, I guess self-imposed on roll camera because I didn't have my own, I didn't work with a different developer. I was doing all that work myself. So the line between where design went and development went was totally blurred. And that can be tough because there are so many things that you, in the exact same way as with film, as if you're directing something, which you're emotionally attached to early from early on in the process, like, you know, oh, this, uh, for instance, uh, is a good example from roll camera for the long time. There was this mechanic where you, there was this crew mood dice. So there was a big fat dice that you roll and it would determine the crew's mood for the day, for the turn, you would roll that at the top. And if it rolled poorly, then you would have to draw a problem. And if it rolled well, then you could play an idea. So there's like problem cards that cause pr trouble and their idea cards, which, uh, are, are beneficial. And, those are still in the final game at this point. But back then in this early design, it was just a dicey roll that was like, are, is the crew happy or not? And there were ways that you could like adjust the crew mood. And I really liked this mechanic thematically because it it's such an important part of filmmaking, actually, like the, the mood of being on set. And like, it's such a big part of being a, a director or a producer or a leader in a team is setting the tone. And like, and, and I mean, anyone who's worked in any kind of work environment knows that like, the tone of work and what it's like emotionally to work there it comes from the top. It comes from the leadership. Um, and so I wanted to reflect that some way because it was very important to me that, you know, lo lots of uh, aspects of filmmaking have been reflected thematically in role camera because, uh, because I was very specific about certain things, but that was one thing that people just, it's just not fun. It's not fun to roll a die and be like, you know, well, let's find out if we have something bad happens or something good happens. Like it's just poor design, but it was so, it took so long for that to be ripped out of the design because I just love the little faces that were on this big dice that you rolled. And I liked why it was in there. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that a developer, you know, being an editor in this case, in a way would look at that and be like, yeah, this is, we're scrapping this. This makes no sense. Right. I feel like another thing you really gain when you have somebody else is you're accountable to somebody else. And so if like, for instance, I've got some stuff I'm working on right now and I am currently the bottleneck uh, they are waiting on me to send something back to them. And I feel that weight. I feel that burden of, okay, I don't want to be the reason that traffic has stopped, right? I don't want to be the, the, the traffic jam. And so that gives me more motivation to get things done. And I can look at my to-do list and go, okay, I need to get that done because I am currently the bottleneck and I want to put that back on them, whether it's I'm working with an illustrator or a co-designer or whatever. And so I think that's another thing. It kind of keeps you going. You can create deadlines that aren't just made up because you're actually, you don't want to waste somebody else's time or you don't want to waste their totally. effort or energy or, or things like that. And so I think there's a lot of benefit there. Um, what else though? What are some other things, maybe some little anecdotes uh, like you just mentioned that you also have run into on, on either side, pro or con? Yeah, well, pro, so that's the, that's a con, I suppose, that you don't have anyone to check you. And like you said, you don't, you don't have anyone you're accountable to. And that can go both ways too, actually, now that you mention it, if you think about it, like sometimes you might hold yourself to too high a standard for accountability. So like if the only person you're holding, that's holding you accountable is you, you know, oftentimes as creatives, we can get uh, tunnel visioned and we can also get perfectionist about things. And it's important to have someone go like, look, it's good enough. You know, this is fine. This is going to be fine. And someone you trust who can say that. And if you're working all by yourself, another con is that, you know, uh, so not just that you're someone is holding you is accountable, but also that someone is there to be like, it's fine. It's, this is, this is totally fine. You don't have to kill yourself over this small detail. Um, a pro though, working by yourself is in my experience, um, that you can work faster. So if you are smart about it, you're not letting yourself, you know, 
not letting it get out of hand. You can, you know, the pro, one of the th- issues with teamwork is you, there's, as soon as you're working with another person, there is a, another level of communication. Now, all of a sudden you have to explain what you want to someone else who's not in your brain. And that can be tough. And in fact, the a, a director's job, if you really think about it, is that's pretty much all it is. Pretty much all. There's a quote from Quentin Tarantino. He said that he was talking to Terry Gilliam, both great directors. But it was when Quentin Tarantino was quite a young director, and he said, "Well, how, how do you do? How do you how do you direct these crazy films?" Terry Gilliam is known for having these like he did. You know, he was one of the Monty Python guys, and he also did like Brazil and just all these really over the top, big films with just vision. You know, just incredible vision. He said, how do you do that? How do you get that from your brain to the screen? And he said, well, I don't. I tell the actors where to stand and what I want them to say and do. And I tell the costume designer what I want it to look like. And I just have to explain to them. It's all you have to do as a director is just explain what you want. And um, that can be really hard. That is a tough skill to learn. Anyone who's worked with anyone else knows that uh, it, it, it's not easy to explain what you want. And there's so many opportunities for miscommunication and so many opportunities for, for slowdown is the more links in the chain, the more you're waiting for someone, the more you're, uh, the more opportunity there is for that chain to get rusty basically. And one upside to doing roll camera myself is I can iterate as fast or slow as I want. I can, if I have an idea for something, I can immediately run and go do it. Um, and this was really useful when it came to stuff like graphic design, uh, and illustration because something that, in fact, to the point where I'm not even sure how other designers do it because so much of graphic design is about user experience and about user interface and about how they interact with the mechanisms of the game. And there's so many things that once you put the put the graphic design on it, can things that you thought mechanically weren't working in the game can suddenly work. And so like I learned this very early on with the with roll camera where the initial prototypes were very bare bones. I just had basically was using backs of pizza boxes and I drew a grid and that was basically it was very like um, utilitarian. And I discovered pretty quickly that that just made it hard to interact with the game. And so I like I had to by nature, I had to include some graphic design and some iconography in order for people to interact with it in a way that I felt was going to be more useful for me as a designer to learn like what is actually working and not working. What is not just me, uh, you know, what is just the player not getting, not being into a game that's a grid on the back of a pizza box, you know? And so I think it's really important to have artwork and graphic design early on in the process. Uh, Most designers um, suggest the opposite. And I totally get that because you don't want to be paying for a bunch of artwork you may not use. And so this is one of the strengths to being your own artist as well. But for me, like that's such an important thing is to integrate graphic design early on and have that be part of the design process. And that can be really hard to do if you are relying on someone else or, or, you know, paying them hourly or uh, to, to produce a lot of work. And then you have to not just wait for that, but also pay for that and also pay for when it changes inevitably. Um, when it influences the design or vice versa. Right. I mean, obviously it also depends on, are you publishing this game or are you pitching the game to someone else to publish? In that case, don't spend hardly any money because it's probably going to be lost or or wasted. But I'm I'm totally of the the same mind, especially when it comes to graphic design, because I want to play test graphic design just as much as the other parts of the game. I want to make sure that the cards are laid out in a way that makes sense and that things are intuitive and that the colors line up and you know all those different things that are just part of the user overall experience are so so valuable 
to ha- to have from from a testing standpoint. And uh, I'll even wait a little bit about testing something until I have some graphic design that comes in. And like you're saying, you, if you can do it yourself, uh, it's it's a lot faster as opposed to waiting on other people. Another thing that I found works really really well, and maybe you can speak to to some something about this, is I will oftentimes outsource small parts of a design. So mm. for instance, in my uh, game Hunted Woad Ridge, there were a ton of little event vignettes that need to be written about 100, 150 words. And I think I had 100 total, something like that. And that, that was a lot. That was a lot of words. That was a lot of different little scenarios and little stories and all that kind of thing. And I could write those. I'm a proficient writer. I've written lots of stories and books and things like that. I could do that. Or I could go out and find 10 other people to do that. And what would take me maybe a month in my schedule, uh, they could do in about a week because, you know, one, it was all broken up. So 10 people, that's 10 stories each, paying them by the word and things like that. Like they got it all done super, super fast. And so that actually worked faster than I would have been able to do it on my own because I was able to Mm. split things up into small parts and and outsource that. Another game I'm working on right now is called Robomon, kind of a Pokemon style game. And so I want to have a lot of puzzles in there. I want to kind of relive the the video game and, and like little puzzles and having to kind of rack, rack your brain. All right, how does this work? And that kind of thing. I am not a puzzle maker though. And so I've outsourced the puzzles part of that game design to some people who are very, very good at creating puzzles that are fun and intuitive and people can actually figure out versus the puzzles I would come up with, which would either be so simple. They're not even worth doing or so hard. They're impossible. And so I found people yeah. who are much more proficient. And so that's one thing I found to kind of help is, finding little parts of the design that I can outsource to either people who have more time than I do or are just more skilled in that certain aspect. And I could see other designers doing this maybe with a combat system where you're doing a lot of the other, you know, a lot of the game design, but maybe the combat system you're struggling with. So find another designer to just work on the combat system or just work on the story or or whatever it is. I can see that being helpful uh, as well. Do you have any experience with kind of outsourcing like a small part or or even just developing or just finding like a lead playtester to help you with one particular aspect of a game design? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and in fact, even in roll camera, there were certain aspects of it, like um, the rule book. I, I, when I wrote the rule book, it was, and I subjected my friends to it, uh, the, the, my poor friends. Um, and it, they just like, one of them was nice enough to take a video of their play test. And it was just, it was excruciating to watch because it was like watching somebody struggling through a technical manual and it was awful. And I consider myself a creative person, but I think actually that was exactly the wrong type of skill to apply to rule book writing. And so I, um, I hired out a fantastic uh, rule book writer by the name of Tom Hillier, who um, just was able to like magically take the rules that I'd written and organize them in a way and then write them in a way that uh, was really intuitive. And now a bunch of people have mentioned how great and easy the rule book is and that's all him. Um, another area was graphic design and this, there was a, there was a part where I hired a consultant to, I was having some trouble with some of the iconography and I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't too being, my blinders weren't on too much. Like I was, I was addressing all of the graphic design needs of the game. Um, and so I hired someone to come and look at that and kind of give me an audit of the graphic design and, and suggest places where it could be better and could be could be different. And that was also really helpful. That, in fact, like if you're somebody who wants to do it all yourself, this is part of the thing too, is that I I wanted with Roll Camera to to do a lot of this stuff myself. I, I was very intentional um, because I wanted to learn about all the parts of the process and I wanted to get better at each of the parts. And so graphic design is a part that like visual design 
obviously from my filmmaking background and from uh, from some of the creative work I've done, like I do have a background in sort of visual aesthetic, visual design, but graphic design as it as it applies to tabletop game design is a very specific type of graphic design and and UX design, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't making any really big rookie mistakes. And I wanted to learn how to do it better. And that's why rather than hire a graphic designer to do that from scratch, I wanted to have someone to basically take a look at the work that I had done. Rulebook editing, I don't think, <laughs> that's not a skill that I think, like I did my best with that. And I think I've reached my, <laughs> I think I know my, I think I peaked with that particular draft of uh, the rulebook for old camera. So I'm happy in the future projects as well to, to outsource that. Yeah, I definitely understand that feeling. And one thing you brought up a really good point. One thing that I, uh, one of the reasons I got into publishing is I got so tired of being lied to and being strung along, led on, you know, led on by publishers about mm. thing, games that I was pitching. I was just, I kind of got frustrated and I'm the kind of person that's like, I, I'll just do it myself. Like, yeah. Like if, if you don't want to bet on me, that's fine. I will bet on myself and I will double down and bet on myself. Right. And so that's another totally. thing for people to think about is, how much of this do you want to do? Like, do you have a specific vision for your your project, for your game that you really want to make sure it has a certain art style and a certain theme and you, you don't want other people coming in and changing it? And even if it's going to change it for the better, make it a better product that's going to sell more in the marketplace, but it's going to be away from your vision, this artistic style, you know, whatever it is you have for it. Okay, you have to make those decisions. And then are you willing to learn? Are you willing to figure out all these things that you don't know? Because the odds of you knowing how to do accounting and logistics and fulfillment and marketing and design and all that stuff, like the odds of you knowing all those things, pretty low. The odds mm -hmm. of you knowing hardly any of those things, pretty low. You might have a really good handle on one or two, but you're going to have to learn a lot. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to lose money uh, figuring things out. Some mistakes are more expensive than others. But how much of this do you want to do on your own? And why? I think that's another thing is getting to the heart of why am I doing this and would it be better off? Would I be better off? Would my game be better off by not doing it all myself, pitching it out to a publisher, finding someone else to work with, something like that. I think it's just questions you need to answer early on. And the earlier you answer them, the the better things get because then you're, you're going to make very different decisions yeah. about design or all that kind of stuff. Like we're just talking about like you might not want to spend money on art if you're going to pitch it to publishers. And so it's really good to know that early right, rather than later is that way you can start making decisions early on about all sorts of different things. Yeah. You mentioned control, uh, you know, artistic control. And I think that's a very good reason to want to do it all yourself. Now it's dangerous because I think the, you know, the, the specter of artistic control and the sort of auteur theory, I think is a, is a, is a bit of a myth a little bit, especially when, you know, in filmmaking, this auteur theory thing is quite prevalent. And, um, and I think it exists a lot. Like I, I don't want to give the, the sense that, that anyone's vision is so precious that it can't be influenced or uh, impacted or that there can't be any feedback that you get or anything like that. And in order to be a good um, do it all yourselfer. Um, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this, but there's a, I, I would like to coin a term for the do you all yourselfer. Um, the term I would like to coin is, and we're going to make it happen, a lock-alike. <laughs> because a lock-alike. Oh, lock first of all, hold on, spell that. <laughs> As in Ryan Lockett, you know, Ryan Lockett is the like, oh, big, gotcha. the, the sort of, uh, the proto, he's the sort of example that he's everyone He's the trailblazer. Well, He's the, yeah, he does the big three, right? He does the design, the illustration, publishing. He does have a team, but he and his wife are the only full-time employees of, of Red Raven Games. And so I just thought, this is the perfect title, a lock-alike. 
someone who was like a locket. <laughs> um, Can we just like re spell Loch Ness monster or something like that? I think that might be more fun. <laughs> <Like, but anyway. laughs> um, so I think the. Oh, now I've lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. That was a terrible joke. I messed about? you up. My bad. <laughs> no, no. I messed myself up with this stupid tangent. But um, the. Um, You're talking about ah, yeah, tours. So, and, and, yeah. Right. So one of the benefits to the lock-alike life is that you can have control over um, all of those aspects. And as long as you're willing to be, as long as you're able to be humble about your vision and, and allow it to be influenced and not be such a control freak, um, then you can give it uh, what we call in filmmaking a sort of unified aesthetic. So unified aesthetic in filmmaking basically means that, you know, a film will have a color scheme often where not every scene, like every scene will be usually a couple of shades off of each other, or there will be a certain set of colors that are used and certain set of colors that are deliberately not used. And those colors will be throughout the costuming, in the background, uh, in the cars that pass by, in the lights that are used, in the colors of the lights, in the text, the colors of the text. Um, it's just one example, but unified aesthetic applies to everything. It applies to the sound. It applies to the acting, the performance, the style of the performance, the, the way that the camera moves. And all of this stuff should work together as a singular, coherent thing. And that, when that works, then the audience is totally immersed in this experience. And it's the same with any creative thing. A unified aesthetic is what you, as the leader of this project, really need to bring to it. And so obviously, and a film is a big team uh, exercise and so obviously you can do that with other people there um, but in in board games you have the luxury uh, if you have the luxury of, of doing it yourself you you have a much shorter uh, line between you and that unified aesthetic realized uh, and so that can be that can be a big benefit it can allow you to exercise that control at a very precise level right I think it's also important to point out the fact that Ryan Lockett is an extraordinarily good illustrator versus me who is extraordinarily <laughs> bad. And so it also just depends on like what your skill set is and what you enjoy. I don't, I don't enjoy drawing. And so even if I was really good at it, I don't enjoy it. And so do I want to spend a whole bunch of time uh, creating a bunch of art for cards and a board and all that kind of thing. I think it's just something to, to kind of keep in mind. And is it, you're yeah. going to, you're going to make less money, but are you going to sell more games? Is your, your mm. project going to look a lot better by going out and finding someone who is an excellent artist, even if you're really good? Well, you have to kind of make that business decision. If I go find an extraordinary art artist, okay, I'm going to make less money because I'm paying that extra out, but I'm going to have more time that maybe I can then turn into another project or, or something. Like, it's just all of these decisions that have to be made. And again, what is your vision and, and all that kind of thing? Yeah, and that's such a good point. And I really want to stress that. I think it's very, very important is that, you know, you need to play to your strengths. That's the important, that's the most important, I think, takeaway. If, you know, if doing it all yourself, for my particular case, that just happened to be the sort of realization that I had with Roll Camera that, like, I can do this all myself. Like, I do have the basic skills in all of these areas to do this work, so let's try it out. And some of, some of those skills, I you know, I have more skills than others. Um, but I, I knew I could pull it, pull them all off, but that doesn't mean you have to, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to do that or you have to go out and do it all yourself. You have to do your own illustration if that's not something you enjoy doing. Ryan Lockett is a self-taught illustrator, so you can do it. You know, you can teach yourself like he did, but 
you got to love it. Like it's got to be something you enjoy doing because if it's not, <laughs> then just hire someone else. And that's exactly what the realization I came to when it came time to do the expansion for roll camera was the, the part that really ground me down in that pro in that whole process, doing all of the bits and pieces. Uh, well, there were two main things. The first was the Facebook ad campaign stuff. Like I just found that soul destroying. <laughs> I just, I don't have like a background in, social media or marketing or that sort of thing. I, I have done it myself to a certain degree, but it, the, the level that it was required, I, I severely underestimated how much work it was going to be and how much attention and focus and time it was going to take to really do that well. And so I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to bringing someone else on for that the next time around. And the second thing that was really, really difficult for me for Roll Camera was the like, the sort of development, the like the thick of it in development. And when I say that, I mean, once the game design is sort of set and there's no, not going to be any major changes in the, the way that the game works and the way that you play a turn and the way that sort of major systems are there, that's like getting all those things done is like, I don't know, maybe 30% of the work of actually completing a design of the game. Uh, maybe that's even um, generous. Uh, I think... The rest of that time is is tweaking and fine tuning and like fine iteration, and that's the development process, at least if I, as I've come to understand that the way that those terms are distinguished. And yeah. uh, I just when I talked to Matt, oh sorry, no, go ahead, jump in real quick. But when I talked to Matt Leacock about this, and this is Matt Leacock, like Mount Rushmore, Mount Le Matt Leacock, greatest designer of all time in a lot of people's minds. And he said, yeah, when I get about ninety percent done with a game, I realize I've probably got about ninety percent left. Yeah, that's Matt Leacock, you know, and so for the rest of us, like for me, if I'm 90% done, that probably means I have 400% more of, of yeah. the game design left. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, totally. And that, I remember him saying that it was either him or it was Rob Davio because that when they were working on Pandemic Legacy, that I think they were telling each other this. So it was probably, they both, oh, yeah. they both mentioned it. Um, but mm -hmm. that, that quote has haunted me ever since. Um, <laughs> and I, I just found that really difficult that period because I knew it needed to be done. It needs to be, it needs to be, uh, uh, you know, polished, but that polishing just takes forever. And that's actually a, probably a good uh, analogy because that's the same when you're like, you know, building a piece of furniture or uh, creating a you know, sculpture or something like that. Final 90% is just polishing, sanding, that sort of thing, like fine tuning it. And, and so I, I wanted to hire a, um, a developer. I, I didn't even know uh, that that was a thing during Roll Camera, but um, I have since learned, um, partially thanks to this wonderful podcast, that there is that there are developers out there that, and you can approach them and they love to do this stuff. They love to go out and do play testing and do like small iteration and do like to make tiny changes and, and really polish and polish and polish and sand and sand and sand. And so I'm, I was overjoyed to find, to work with um, John Velgus uh, from Brieger Creative. And he's just breathed complete new, fresh spirit into the, into that game. And the expansion just does everything, like ticks all the right boxes because he was not me exhausted by, you know, three years of already having worked on real camera and not me with my blinders on and was able to, um, yeah, absolutely. So that was a, and that, and it was able to enjoy, take the, part of the process I didn't like and take his passion for that particular part of the process and really, really together, you know, we did, we were able to, we were more than the sum of our parts. So um, yeah, totally that, you, you know, you don't want to kill yourself with stuff that you don't enjoy doing or don't like to do or aren't good at, unless you want to get good at that thing. Sure. Then, you know, take that opportunity. I think you have an opportunity in board games to learn a lot of different skills. And if you want to, the, the stakes are not that high. If you want to learn, you know, 
um, game design or the or the publishing or logistics and this kind of stuff. Like if you want to do it on a smaller Kickstarter project, you can learn those skills um, and kind of get good at them. But if you don't want to and don't like it and you know that for a fact, don't do it. <laughs> you don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as development goes, very rarely is a person really good at both. What I find is that the mind, you know, somebody's brain that's really good at design is oftentimes not super good at development and vice versa. And I think there's a lot of people that get into game design that run into roadblocks and get really, really frustrated. And it's maybe because development is actually what they're really, really good at. And they would Mm. be better off not necessarily spearheading a game design, but coming alongside somebody else and helping them, you know, kind of figure things out. Not that you can't design your own game, you know what I mean? But uh, but it's hard to be really good at both. And so just kind of understanding if you're really good at one or the other, then find some other people to help you with the thing you're not as good at. And again, like I was saying with art, even if you're really good, maybe finding someone extraordinary is still Mm. the better way to go. It's going to create a better project or, or product on the market down the road. And I think a lot of this really just comes down to can versus should. You can do something. Does that mean you should? Is that the best route? Is that the most time efficient way to do it? Is that going to make you the most money if you're getting into publishing? Is that going to create the biggest Kickstarter campaign? So can versus should, and just kind of having that conversation with yourself or with other people that can give you you know, a different angle, a different perspective, and, and having, having those conversations. Um, like I was saying earlier, I, I can write 100 stories. Should I? Yeah. Or should I use that time and work on such these point. other things that are going to bring more money in long-term that, that are going to be more strategic and, and going to be better overall. And, and that's kind of a conversation conversation I have with myself every morning. It's like, okay, I can do those five things, but should I right now, is that going to bring the most value into what I'm doing overall? Yes or no. And if the answer is no, then there's my answer. And I can maybe put that on the back burner. Maybe I can do that next week. Maybe it's not as important. And then let me work on the things that I really should be working on right now. Yeah, it's tough though, man. I got, it. I totally agree, and you're 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 right on the money. And at the same time, I, it's really hard to make that distinction, like to make that distinction for me personally sometimes, because there's so many of these things that I can do, and that I want to do. Like for instance, illustration. I am no Ryan Lockett. Like you can go look at the at the roll camera campaign, like that more or less is the sort of extent of my artistic ability. And I just I feel like I got lucky that the style that I can do, which are these sort of bean people is um is appealing has an has an appeal that there are people who uh can you know who who have mentioned lots of times that they love the artwork and so like great if you love the artwork and you're willing to and that's what i can do and that matches up perfect yeah i think one thing to think about when when trying to make that decision is history so what i mean by that is maybe you should do it yourself first because you can and then Maybe don't for the next time and then compare. I'll give you an example. I've done my own marketing and social media and Facebook ads and, and that kind of thing. I've done that myself. I can. I know how to do it. I figured it out. I've also hired a marketing company to do it for me. And now I can compare those two experiences and I can, I have hard numbers to say, okay, how much money did the Kickstarter campaign make when I did it versus when I hired somebody to do it, even minus the fees that I paid. And it, it makes it very simple because I made a ton more money when I hired that out with professionals that do this on a daily basis versus me trying to do it once or twice a year, you know, hiring someone out that, that does this as a job as opposed to me doing it kind of like a little part-time hobby. And so I can look at the numbers and go, okay, it makes more sense for me to hire that out. And so I think that can help as well as just doing some projects. And I think starting small is a great thing to do. I, and that's often my advice to people, especially who are just getting into game design is maybe don't design the next Twilight Imperium 
maybe design an 18 card game or design a game that fits in a mint 10, you know, try to do a Kickstarter campaign where you only need $5,000 as opposed to 50. I think that makes a whole lot of sense in the same way that if you were just getting into carpentry, you wouldn't go, I'm going to go build a house. No, you would say, I'm going to build a dog house. I'm going to build a table. Like you wouldn't go try to build a two story house in, in somebody's suburb. You know, that doesn't make any sense. And for, so from the game design or game publishing standpoint, it's the same kind of thing. Figure out how to do something on a small scale, learn some things, make some mistakes, pay for those mistakes, whatever, and then you know work your way up into the bigger things. And so I think when you start small, you can actually afford to do these things yourself. And, and I can do it, so I'm going to. And then you can start making decisions based on hard evidence of what are the numbers? What, what happened when I did it versus when I hired it out? Okay, what, what, what's the actual math? What was my time like? What was my stress like? How did I feel? Even though I could do it and we did pretty well, man, I hated it. I can do the accounting. Gosh, I hate doing it. And so I'm going to pay low extra. And so anyway, I think just kind of getting some experience, starting small, working your way up can also be super helpful in trying to figure out, should I do this even though I can, whatever, it, makes, it helps make that decision for you. Yeah. Ask for help. Don't be afraid to, to reach out and ask for help from people who uh, are more experienced than you are. I, I will say though, that sometimes it can be useful to do that work yourself first to try to at least try it. And this was something that this is why I really appreciated having the experience with roll camera to do all the aspects myself, because now I'm now it's very clear to me, like which parts of it I am good at or not good at, which parts of it I enjoy, don't enjoy. And I don't think that would have been clear to me beforehand. And also I wouldn't have been able to communicate as well what I wanted to someone I'm hiring if I hadn't kind of been down that path before myself and know a little bit of like my way around this particular area, you know, with development, for example, with, with John Belgus, he's far more experienced than I am. He's far more um, skills and, and time put into that. But because I had done some, you know, I had done the development on the original road camera, I was able to communicate with him in his language. If he said something to me about a testing session that worked or didn't work the way he thought it was or wasn't going to do it. It wasn't going to throw me off. I wasn't going to say, well, you're not doing your job. It was, I, was able to, I was able to understand, okay, he's at this point in the development process, and that's totally normal. Um, and it also was able, it able me to tell him, okay, well, why don't we try this or that, knowing that it wasn't a completely ridiculous suggestion because I had also been, I could see from his point, like I could, be more empathetic towards his position and kind of put myself in his shoes and what he might need or not need as a developer because I had done that work. So I do think, and I think, you know, when it comes to illustration, you mentioned that, you know, you don't like drawing. It's not something that you're good at, which means you've tried it. You know, you have given it a shot. That may not be the case for all the aspects that we mentioned, you know, maybe logistics, maybe you haven't ever had to uh, try to ship something from China and why not, why not try it? You know, maybe you can, uh, obviously you can work with someone else to do that as well. Um, but I think that by taking some of that stuff on, especially as you say, on a small project where the stakes are pretty low, this is the great thing about the Kickstarter model. It's the great thing about, um, about board games and doing like a card game is that, you know, everything, the stakes are very low and the, and the chance of, uh, screwing something up is not very high. And you can really then, take on some of the, learn in a micro scale, some of these skills that you might need uh, to then go like, you know what? I learned, I never want to do that again. Time to hire someone else next time to do that for me. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, I think success has actually destroyed a lot more people on Kickstarter than failure ever will. And people kind of going into a situation hoping to get $20,000 and then they made half a million and 
oh crap, now what do I do? And I think that's yeah. that's been a really tough thing. But like you're saying, for the most part, you can start off on a small scale, get your feet wet, figure things out. And personally, I, I really like doing things myself the first time. That way I do have a better understanding. And so give an example, like years ago, I was building a website using WordPress and I didn't know what I was doing. I was watching so many YouTube videos and trying to figure out all these different aspects and which plugins to use and which hosting provider and, and like all these different things. And I had the, the option I could have just paid someone some money and said, hey, you build it. Here's what I want. Here's the logo. Here's the colors, whatever you do it. But I wanted to understand how to do it. And I wanted to understand how to fix something if it broke. So if a plugin wasn't working, I knew how to go in, disable it, try to do this, that, and the other, try to figure things out and fix it. All the little aspects of going into the different menus and the checkbox, all that stuff. I wanted to know how to fix it. Whereas now, if I'm building a website, I'm much more likely to go out and find somebody to do it because I know how to do it. I know how to fix yeah. it. I know how to do certain things, you know, on the back end. And I just don't necessarily have time to build the whole thing. And so let me go find someone who can maybe build the infrastructure and build like the base for it. And I can come in and add like the polish to it or something like that. But I understand how to do it. And so I think that's, there's also value there, whether it's figuring out logistics or fulfillment or working with China, whatever it is. Uh, I think there's value in doing it yourself the first time, even if you are going to outsource it later, like you're saying, you, you at least understand where someone's coming from. And you also, you don't necessarily get like false expectations. When you understand that playtesting takes a certain amount of time, like just naturally, then you get that. And, and you don't get upset if somebody you hired to develop a game is taking you know, a certain amount of time to, to play test, you, know, you, you understand it just takes a while. And so I think there's also value there. But also critically, you know what good work looks like before you hire somebody. So, you know, you know, when I talked to John Velgas beforehand and when he talked about what development, like what he saw for roll camera and what he could and couldn't do and John Brieger as well, both of them, like it was very clear to me super like immediately that they were professionals and knew exactly what they were doing, what they were talking about. And this was going to work out. And you, you get that gut sense uh, you know, that sort of BS uh, detector of like whether or not somebody really knows what they're talking about and knows what they're doing or not, because you've done it yourself. And so, you know, they can speak your language. And if they're better, they're more fluent than you are, then it's probably a good sign. And if they're not, then 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 look elsewhere, because many people have been burned trying to hire, quote unquote, professionals, but not actually knowing what that looks like. That's a great point. And I think the phrase speak the language, that metaphor is, is dead on. You want to at least understand the terms, especially when, when it comes to some of these things, which especially like with shipping and fulfillment and certain things and, and working with China, all that, there are just certain acronyms, certain phrases, certain things that, that you just need to understand. Just like if you were going to go to a different country and live that speaks a different language than yours, you probably need to learn how to ask where the bathroom is. Like that's going to be pretty helpful to you. And so in the same way, when you're involving yourself in a totally different industry or side of the industry or something like that, you, you need to understand what to say. So if you're going to work with an illustrator, it's really helpful if you know what file types and do you need bleed or do you not need bleed? And like all those different phrases that you have no reason to, to know or understand if you're not in it, it's really helpful to understand those things. So when you are communicating with other people, you can speak the same language. That's hundred percent. Totally. Well, awesome, man. Any, anything else, any other little anecdotes, anything that, that sticks out in your mind from any of the, the three, the trifecta, the design, the, the, artistic side of the publishing anything else that you want to bring up yeah there's one part there's one last part to it which we didn't really touch on yet which i think anybody who is working on like running like doing running the kickstarter model and not going to pitch to publishers um has run into or or if not if you haven't yet you're going to which is that the part of being a lookalike in this sense is uh you are the face of your 
brand. Um, if you are self-publishing and you are running that company, then you are a figure, a sort of public figure is the wrong word, but you are a you are a character, you are a personality, you, you, all of that is part of the brand. And that, that's something that, um, that I picked up when I was running, I was, uh, I was running a film school in, uh, here in Berlin and designing courses and also kind of working with the marketing department and working with tutors and, uh, interfacing with the students all the time, of course, when I was teaching, but also when it came to issues they were having, and all of this, I, I realized really quickly that I needed to step up and sort of be the be the leader figure of that school and for the students and for the tutor team and for the other members of the organization, I had to be that representative figurehead. And that meant I had to craft a sort of personality in a way. I mean, it, it sounds inauthentic and I really don't want it to because I think that it needs to be 100% authentic. But you are putting yourself as the face of that company, of the games company, of the game that you're creating, and especially when it comes to crowdfunding where people are investing. Yes, there's this whole debate about whether it's a store, whether it's a it's like investment thing, it's somewhere in between. And, and But when it comes down to it, like a lot of people get value out of backing a project on Kickstarter because they have access to the creator and because they are moved by the creator's story, by the fact that they are a human being and not a, not a company or that they are a company made up of human beings that put their faces front and center. You know, you see a lot of Kickstarter campaigns. I just saw Paths of Iridia. Um, I haven't played uh, Shia, Legend of a Drift System, or, or Back to Iridia, but I was looking at it and I noticed that, you know, this guy, people often talk about, oh, he's a great guy. Like he's a stand-up guy. And he's, you know, he puts a picture of his family there on the on the Kickstarter page. There's a reason for that. He's he's That's marketing. It's not cynical. He's not doing it to be inauthentic he's not using his his family to um to make money he's trying to he's marshalling he understands that he is a personality and that his face is part of the face of the company and part of the face of the game and part of the experience of the product actually it's part it cannot be separated and that can be really tough that because that's also a skill being a face talking to people coming on a podcast, you know, that's exactly as I'm doing like this. It takes, it, it, it takes work and it takes a uh, skill. It takes a certain type of person. That's not for everybody. Um, and so that can be, that's just one thing we didn't talk about that can be maybe not initially really obvious. You can draw, you can design, you can like run a business, you can do all those things, but if you can't like uh, appear personable on camera um, or, or at least in audio, then it's going to be tough. It's going to be a, an uphill battle. Um, and if you can use that skill, like use that ability because it, uh, it, it's worth, it's worth a lot. It's, it's worth a lot to be a person that other, that strangers feel like they can approach, you know, and, and that they can trust. That's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And on the other side of that, you also have to realize that when you outsource things, when you hire other people or you partner with other companies, they're people too and they're broken and messed up and they have weird stuff going on in their lives and they might do some terrible things that then now you're kind of attached to your name is is next to their name for whatever reason or partnership or developer or whatever and so you might have to do some damage control and be like okay i need to distance myself from that person because they did these things and so now you know is it yeah. egregious enough where you're like okay i, I can't work with you because 
you know, you bring everything else I'm doing down and I don't want to support that kind of behavior or, you know, whatever it is, you also have to realize you, you might be writing uh, some, some social media posts that say, Hey, you know, I'm not about that. I don't support that. And I'm not going to work with that person anymore or, you know, whatever it is, there's all sorts of situations that we see on social media pretty regularly uh, at this point. And it's just because the nature of social media and the nature of people right now, uh, getting out there and, and just kind of spreading the word about lots of different things. And so it's just something to kind of be aware of in, in modern life. And the more you outsource, the more companies or partnerships or people you, you work with, the more likely that is to happen. And so just be aware of that. Yeah. And the buck has to stop with you. That's the other hard part of that, of like being the face of something is that you have to take that responsibility. It doesn't matter. You know, if someone else does something crappy, you have to be the one to write that, write that social media post and be like, it's, it's on me because xyz and that's tough that's tough to do and it um and it's not always fair and but you know what that's what you have to do it's what that's what leadership is and if you are leading if you are running a company and you are asking people to invest in you as a creator and as a business person and as a publisher and an illustrator or whatever else um you're asking them to put their stock in you as a person too and uh it's tough to separate those things but it's really important to be aware that those do they are, they do get tangled up. Um, and so if you have a toxic personality, uh, that can definitely come out. And it can, as we have seen in recent, recent weeks, that can really hurt your, your brand. It can hurt everything that you're trying to build. Um, yeah, very quickly, very easily. If you're not willing to take that accountability. Yeah, for sure. And if it turns out that you're the person in the wrong, just be upfront about that. Be honest with people you know, maybe you, you said something and it came out wrong or it came out in a different way than you intended or something like that had a, an impact, an effect that you totally didn't even think of. Whatever it is, just be honest about that. And, and if you need to put out an apology, put out an apology. You know, I'm not saying lie. You know, I'm not saying go out there and just blow smoke up people's butts or anything like that. But if you make a mistake, and even if you don't realize it, it realize it at first, listen to people, especially, yeah. you know, surround yourself with people that you can trust, that want the best for you and your company and people around you and all that. Listen to them, and if they make some really good points, you need to self-assess and go, okay, maybe I was wrong. Okay, let me – it's always helpful to step back and go, maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> as mm-hmm. opposed to getting super defensive and understand, uh, are you fighting hard? Are you, are you dying on a hill because of the truth, or are you dying on that hill because you want to be right? And that's a, a totally different thing, and, and just assessing and going, okay, what's the truth versus am I just trying to win the argument? Am I trying to, to look good or win or dunk on somebody? whatever it is, uh, are the people coming after me, are they, are they correct? Are they right about, or are they half truth? And that's another thing because a lot of times online, it's, it's the half truth that gets you there, get kind of messes up a, a situation. There, there's a kernel of truth wrapped in lies or something like that. And just identifying and say, okay, here's the truth in this. And this is what happened. And here's what I hoped or thought or said or whatever, but just being open and, and honest, telling the truth, but then also admitting when you're wrong, all that kind of stuff comes together, especially in the, the age we live in. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you my secret for that because I think that it's really critical. Um, and that is I had a, uh, when I was designing the film school that I was running, when I was first starting it up and, and putting the pieces together, I, 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 uh, what, someone I looked up to was a, a guy in Bristol in the UK running a film school called Screenology. And one thing he said to me very early on when I was, uh, when I was starting the work there was, um, here in Berlin, he said in his program, if something goes wrong, they never blame the student. So like if something, if a student's not happy, 
the first the first thing person they look at is themselves. The first person they look at is what have we done to allow this ex- student to have this experience. And that's very unusual because students, especially you know, eighteen to twenty five year olds and in, in sort of their college age, coming in doing creative work, can it can be a handful, and it takes a lot to say, let's look at ourselves first. Okay, this student is unhappy. They're they're throwing a fit. They are uh, marshaling others against us. They are posting on social media that uh, this whole thing is a, this whole place is a, a terrible institution. What have we done? Like, where did we, where did we go wrong that that could happen? That's, and that, that has served me really well. And going through, that's kind of the approach I take when it comes to dealing with um, people so far anyway, uh, with people online, with dealing with uh, backers and dealing with customers, dealing with partners is if there's a tension first thing I go is, okay, what did I do to, what did I do to allow that to happen? Or was there a place, was there something I could do differently? Um, and, and try and see it from that perspective, you know, is, uh, what, what's his name? Stephen Coven from the seven habits, highly effective people, right. Is uh, seek to understand before you, before being understood. And that, that goes a long way. And it and it's a low bar too because I've gotten a lot of comments from people saying you know oh, you're so transparent you're you're so uh, you know the, the you know the um, you're so communicative and understanding and it's it's like I'm not being that communicative I'm not I'm not doing anything that I think is out of the ordinary but the but so many people are so cagey or or moody or let their um, or, or too combative online. Uh, especially publishers and creators, they let them let their emotions run too too hot when they're writing. That um, it's you know a lot of bad experiences out there with with backers and with Kickstarter on social media and so on. I think that um, the bar is not that high for you to to set a good example and to and to try and just take the higher road. Yeah, and this honestly gets back to the whole can versus should question. And you know, I've gotten plenty of Kickstarter comments and, and comments on board game geek and stuff like that. that were really kind of hateful and mean spirited and, you know, uh, overly critical or, or critical of things that I didn't have control, of, whatever. And people go on rants and because it's the internet, they, they sit down and they type out and say their piece. And I sit there and I think, okay, I can respond, but who cares? Mm-hmm. It do- this doesn't matter. I'm not going to use time out of my day. Now, if somebody's asking a question or if they're, they're upset because their game didn't arrive and I need to go figure out the, the issue with the fulfillment company or the postal service, whatever. Okay. That's different. But if somebody's just being like, Hey, I hate this thing. And here's why point one, point two, point three. Cool. I, I really kind of don't care. Like that's fine. It's it, maybe it wasn't for you. Maybe you, you backed the project and you shouldn't have, because this is not a game that's even for your taste. You know, like that's, that's totally fine. I can respond. It doesn't matter. Should I? No, <laughs> it's not worth the time, the energy or the effort. And so I think that's, again, a lot of times gets back to the whole can, can versus should question. Yeah. And I think you're right that like certainly shouldn't respond if you feel like that you're, you're not going to add anything positive to that person's experience if they're going and listing all the things they hate about you and your project. I think it's also worth, though, separately kind of trying if you can. And again, as I said, it's not easy to do, but it's just something that I've trying to I'm trying to live up to is you know, this person is, has a bad experience enough that it's made them angry enough to go on social media and like, uh, and like make a, li- a bullet point list of things they hate in, in this particular example. So something there in their experience, all emotions aside, has made it difficult for them. And so something, there's some kernel of truth there, something that you can learn from, something that, um, that maybe you could have done differently or 
that next time you could approach differently, even if it's as small as like, maybe this person, this is not the right person. You know, as you said, maybe it's not the right game for them. So what, what can I do on my marketing next time in my, in my messaging communication to exclude people like that so that they don't have a bad experience and end up writing crap all over my, <laughs> my comments feeds. So I think it's, there's always something worth you can take from that kind of feedback, even if the, the feedback takes the form of, of, you know, hate mail. And it sure is tough to try and take the high road when it comes to that, but um, it's worth trying. Yeah, absolutely. Malachi, this has been excellent, sir. Closing thoughts. What do you want to leave people with? Well, I just, I don't know. That was a great conversation. Really got really deep there <laughs> towards the end. We got into a, into all kinds of stuff. Um, I just, I think, the big thing to take away when it comes to doing it all yourself is um, play to your strengths. That's the thing I would like to emphasize. Um, and if you don't know what your strengths are, good. Then it's a great opportunity for you to try new things and try it yourself and get, you know, become experienced in those areas. Um, if you are, but if you're, you know, if you can do it all yourself, then do it. Uh, there are others who are doing it and there's great examples. I'm not the trailblazer here. There are others, you know, Ryan Lockett, Cole Worley, plenty of others who have taken the sort of do it all yourself approach. Um, follow their examples and, and others. And it is possible, but you don't have to. Don't feel like that's something that you need to do. Um, as you've mentioned many times, Gabe, it is, it is, it's working with a team of people who are better than you is an absolute pleasure as much as it is uh, doing it yourself. So don't deny yourself that pleasure either. Oh, absolutely. If you're going to lift weights, find somebody stronger than you to do that with. Like don't be the strongest guy in the room. Don't, don't ever find yourself the smartest person in the room. That's not a good room to be in. Yeah. And you always want to find people that can, can push you and hold you accountable and that you can look up to and, and figure out ways to, to grow and, and all that kind of thing. That's hundred percent. Well, Malachi, Absolutely. hey, man, you got a uh, expansion on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about that. You talked a little bit about it. Tell me more. Yeah, the B-Movie expansion uh, is launching on October 5th. It might have already launched by the time this uh, airs. And it, yep, it's developed with, uh, in collaboration with, and designed in collaboration with John Velgus, Breeder Creative, as I mentioned. And it just adds a bunch of um, genres is the, is the kind of, keyword it adds a bunch of genre mechanics and new a ton of new cards a bunch of new all of them with unique illustrations my 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 drawing hand is getting tired um one of the pitfalls of doing it yourself um and adds just a bunch of new content it really fills out roll camera in a, in a and it fills out all the gaps that it had before one of the benefits of working with someone who's smarter than you awesome Malika, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter campaign and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting? <laughs>